For most of my Christian life I've been struggling with uh, a nagging question. Why aren't Christians more transformed? We're called to moral renewal. Why do we so often sin? We're called to boldly and sacrificially serve Christ. Why are we so cowardly and half-hearted? We're promised lives of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Why are we so loveless, miserable, in turmoil, impatient and irritable so much of our lives? Let me say, first of all, actually I do see a real difference amongst Christians. It would be going far too far to say we are just the same as the world around. Believers with a clear uh, faith are very different. Actually, as national survey after national survey shows, we have more stable relationships, we are more generous, we are happier, we are more healthy, just to summarise a few of the surveys of the last few years. But I, personally, am not content. I'm not content with myself. I struggle with uh, sin, half-heartedness, joylessness on a daily basis. And I'm not content on your behalf. Now, let, let me say, sometimes I marvel at the things I see amongst us. Forgiveness, generosity, joy in the face of trials, humble faithfulness, peace in the face of death. I've seen all of those things amongst us. But I'm still not satisfied. I see people struggling with sinful and damaging patterns of behaviour and, and thought. I see them not set free. I see Christian people miserable when Christ offers them joy. I see Christian people deeply anxious about money and image and housing and relationships when actually Jesus is just not to worry, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and he said, all these things will be given to you. So I ask that question regularly. How can I, how can we live more godly lives? And the answer that uh, uh, the world and actually many, many of us give to that question is that uh, we conclude we must cajole, bully, threaten ourselves. We must tie ourselves down with more and more restrictions and rules and limitations. And we're going to see over the next coming weeks Actually, that is not a Christian solution. That is profoundly not a Christian solution. It is a dead end. In fact, in fact it, is, it is completely counterproductive. It does not work. In fact, says the Bible, in the end it makes us worse. If we have some success, we become boastful, which is a more deep 
particularly pernicious problem in our hearts than perhaps our previous sins. If we have failure, then as so often happens, then we become depressed and despairing and feel lost. It does not work. The true answer is that we must see what God has already done for us. We must see what actually God offers us now, freely, to help us change in our present lives. We must see what God offers us in the, in the future, the extraordinary, marvellous, glorious future that God has promised to us. And those three things together will actually transform us in a more profound way than perhaps almost any of us in this room can imagine today. We can be changed. We will be changed. Actually, not just so that um, we can tick a few more boxes of sins that we've defeated. Oh, I hope we can do that. But actually so that we have freedom and joy and peace and satisfaction from the very bottom of our hearts. Which brings us to Romans 8. Because you see, Romans... uh, is in many ways the centrepiece of the Apostle Paul's explanations, many explanations of what it means to be a Christian, what Christ has done for us. And Romans 8 is the centrepiece of the centrepiece. We are at a pinnacle here. We are at the high point of what the Apostle Paul wants to tell us about what it means to be a Christian how we can truly be new people. The slopes that led to that point, Romans chapter 1 to 7, are, are answered two vital questions. The first question was um, found in chapters 1 to 4. That question was, how can I be right with God? How can I be okay with God? The second question, found particularly in Romans 5 to 7, was how then, if I am okay with God, can I live a new life as a Christian? And Romans 8 brings the answers to those two questions all together in this chapter, summing up, actually, at at, at verse 1 of of chapter 8, with a great therefore... Therefore, it says, now that we've learned what it means to be right with God, now that we've learned how we can live a new life, let's explore that a little bit more deeply. Let's really take hold of what it means to be a Christian. These truths then in this chapter are actually in many ways what the whole of the Bible is straining towards. 
finally set out in this chapter in the most extraordinary, majestic clarity. Get these truths deep in our hearts and we'll never be the same again. So my nagging question actually finds its clearest answer, I think, here. We are so little changed because we so little understand Romans chapter 8. I long for greater change for, my, uh, for myself. I long for greater change amongst you, my love. And that is why we're going to spend a couple of months looking at this chapter. Quite slowly, as I said a moment ago, actually I think not slowly enough, but more slowly than we usually go through texts, to see what God really offers us. And this morning we're going to look just at these first four verses, actually, sadly, we're going to probably, more or less, only look at the first verse. Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By and large, I, I think the 20th century people, frankly, yawn a little bit when they see that verse. It means very little, when it should mean so much. There is a very important implication from this verse that most people ignore or treat very lightly and yet we must treat with the utmost seriousness. Then there is an implication from this verse that actually God does condemn some. That's a, that's, that is the startling argument actually of uh, most of uh, Romans 1 to 3. Paul begins his main argument in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Turn back to it with me for a moment. There he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The wrath of God, he says, the anger of God, the condemn, condemning judgment of God is being revealed in the world right now. We are seeing foretastes of God's ultimate condemnation, says the Bible. It will finally be revealed in all its terrifying fullness when God finally returns to judge the living and the dead and to establish his right righteousness. And the apostle doggedly goes on at, 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 at biting, nibbling away at that issue for chapter after chapter in Romans. He warns us in chapter 2 verse 5 that actually it is the self-righteous who are most at risk of that condemnation. The people who congratulate themselves about how good they are. Listen to what he says to them in chapter 2 verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And the final verdict, he says, is a verdict which applies to absolutely everyone. Chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one who can escape God's judgment. That is a sobering reality that the Bible sets before us. And yet it is the thing which our, our world and actually our hearts too rebels against most profoundly so often. We see stark statements like this as encouraging 
a sort of morbidity and negativity which, 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 which just we don't want to wallow in. Friedrich Nietzsche, a hundred years ago, in his book The Antichrist, wrote that Christianity finds sickness necessary. The actual ulterior purpose of the whole system of salvation of the church is to make people ill, he said. He insisted that actually we must remove, throw off, Christian moral restraints because that will set us free. And at the same time as Nietzsche was writing, Sigmund Freud was suggesting that, that m- many of our psychological project, pro- problems were the product of actually Christian morality which suppressed healthy natural instincts and made people feel neurotic about things they should just rejoice in. And for a hundred years now, frankly, our society has been following their lead. Playing down the idea of moral absolutes. We minimise the sense of personal moral responsibility. Either by redefining what is right and wrong, or, or by describing people fundamentally as victims of their upbringing or their society. We've declared all natural instincts to be good, not to be controlled except for perhaps in a few extreme cases, but just expressed. All in this great project to rid ourselves of this damaging emotion of guilt. But you see, after a hundred years, we are not healthier at all. Time and again you will find people beating their breasts over the fact that we suffer from more and more, it seems, emotional unhealth. Struggles of previous generations were uh, guilt. But uh, in our modern mind, that guilt has mutated into much more ill-defined feelings of shame. Guilt is all about violating a clear moral code. It actually had the advantage that uh, um, we could uh, uh, see what was wrong and, uh, and potentially do something about it. But actually removing that moral code, explaining away our responsibility, has not removed the problem. It has actually left people floundering with feelings that things are not right, they just are not right, but we cannot get a clear handle on what it is that is wrong. And actually I think that modern Christians, because we live in that world, suffer from those ill-defined feelings of shame far, far more than perhaps we used to. And the response, you see, of modern people is to become obsessed with covering up that shame. Because if we can't actually deal with it, if we can't actually see what it is and, and, uh, and uh, uh, deal with it, we just have to cover it up. We become obsessed with surface image which masks and contains and hides those inner, inner feelings. We, we be- become obsessed by image. Our bodies, our clothes, our friends, even our mobile phones have got to look right. 
Because actually that's the only tangible way that we can try to feel good about ourselves. And there are protests against that. Uh, against that. I could name so, so many, but uh, let me just um, uh, 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 talk about a couple of, of people. The singer Pink has released a song uh, uh, recently called uh, Stupid Girls in which she protests about the image obsession of, of her peers. It's ironic that she should present herself um, in ways that uh, seem almost as obsessed with image on the, uh, the, the video. But at one point in that song, she says, disease is growing, it's epidemic, I'm scared that there ain't a cure, the world believes it and I'm going crazy. I cannot take it anymore. The point is, you see, that there ain't a cure in Pink's world. Controlling shame is, is frankly like trying to hold a football under the water with one finger. You might push it down in one place, but it pops up in another. Actually, one person who has graphically and painfully explored this inner sense of uh, shame is uh, uh, Tracy Emin. Emin's an artist who, by her own admission, is not has limited technical ability, but she has an extraordinary ability to convey inner emotion in art. In one famous picture, she portrays herself after an abortion. It's actually too graphic to uh, show uh, this morning. She is naked. She is bleeding. And then scrawled on the picture are the words, something's wrong. And in mirror writing, the words, terribly wrong. So it is. And neither Tracy Emin nor Pink, nor actually millions of others, understand what is wrong after a hundred years of trying to remove the Christian concept of guilt because we thought like Nietzsche and Freud it made us sick and neurotic we actually find that we are, we are more sick and neurotic and now on top of it confused all doctors will tell you if we want a cure we must have the right diagnosis no matter how scary that diagnosis is and the diagnosis is so clear in Romans chapter 3. There is no one righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us are guilty and deserve condemnation. But you see the punchline for, the, for Paul's letter is not Romans 3. It is Romans 8 verse 1. There is now no condemnation. But that truth must be processed through Romans 3. What is wrong, Tracy Emin? Well, at root, what is wrong is we have rejected God and are facing his judgment. That's what is wrong. What is wrong, you who struggle with that inner sense of inadequacy and shame? You have violated God's law and are guilty as charged. 
I know that to some extent we are innocent victims. I know that sometimes we feel inappropriate guilt. But you see, those are peripheral problems. Those are problems around the edge that do need to be dealt with. The core, the central problem in our life is that we are guilty enough on our own account to be condemned by God. What is the cure? Pink? Well, you need to know that there is a cure. The stupendous simplicity of Romans 8.1 There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not, you see, that we, there's no condemnation because we didn't really deserve it, as our world keeps trying to tell us. This is not, this is not a sort of um, platitude in a statement of, of course God is a God of love and he couldn't do anything ba- bad to you. We must escape from that to see the power of what is being said. To paper over the cracks with platitudes in a statement, you see, is to leave us lost with ill-defined sense of shame and no outlet, no conduit, no way to deal with it. We must see that actually the very worst of those ill-defined feelings that we have are actually nothing compared to the reality of what God needs to deal with. And he has. We're going to have to come back and look at verse 3 next week to explore how he has. But this, this week we must just register that We did not earn that verdict of no condemnation. Actually, uh, verse 3 says, the law, in other words, us trying to do the right thing, was completely powerless. Why? Because actually, it simply exposed how weak we are. No, the law, doing the right thing, never ever earned a single person in all of history the verdict from God of no condemnation. God did it. God had to do it by sending Jesus Christ to be a man. God had to do it by saying, I will take all the penalty that, 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 that belongs to all of those, those millions and billions of people that I want to save and I will place it on the shoulders of this other man, Jesus Christ. But because he is my son, actually I'm paying for it. I couldn't do it from up there because they were sins in the flesh. They were sins by human beings. I've got to do it here as flesh and blood. And then I'll have done it. I think we're going to explore that more 
next week. But actually for the rest of our time this morning, I, I, I just want us to uh, uh, think actually a one word in that first verse. The word is now. Perhaps, Paul means, almost certainly there's a, an element of, uh, uh, in his mind of, of uh, uh, now as opposed to in the past. See, in the past, God couldn't fully and completely pronounce that no condemnation verdict because Jesus hadn't died on the cross. He hadn't paid for our sins. He could promise it to people sometime in the future. But he couldn't say, I pronounce it now as done until Jesus came. But I think more significantly in, in, in the Apostle's mind, it is now as opposed to in the future. Because you see, the Apostle would have grew up being taught as a good Jew. And the Jews were very clear about um, the need to get God's verdict of no condemnation. It's just that they insisted it was in the future. They insisted that actually um, it would be presumptuous to, uh, uh, to claim it now. God would, sort, would, would summer all of your uh, deeds at the uh, end of your life and come to a, a settled judgment at the end. And this apostle, this Jewish apostle who has become a Christian says, No! I don't have to wait for that verdict. No one who is a Christian has to wait for that verdict. God has made it now. Our future behaviour will not affect that verdict because God has seen it, God has allowed for it, God has paid for it in Jesus and so God, from the first moment that I bow the knee and I ask for God's forgiveness, says I now forgive you for all eternity not just for your past sins but for the ones you will commit in the future to the very end of your life I now say to you no condemnation well, just think of what that means just to, to, to glance back at uh, Romans chapter 3 for instance when we read the incredible intensity of Paul's verdict and actually it's the summary of, of uh, the Old Testament verdict on our sinfulness in chapter 3. I think, frankly, we feel a little affronted. There is no one righteous, verse 10, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, all have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we think to ourselves, I'm not that bad. Surely I'm not. I don't shed blood. I'm not habitually deceitful. I do not have the, the poison of vipers on my lips. Surely. But let me say to you, just suppose sometime in the future you found out you were a lot worse than you thought. Just suppose 
that you discovered a shocking well of bitterness in your heart as a result of uh, the way life treated you. Just suppose that uh, you discovered over the years a horrific habit of spreading strife Suppose that you discovered in yourself a capacity for violence that appalls you. Just suppose you discovered a tendency to unfaithfulness to your partner that makes you sick. Just suppose, actually, your worst nightmare about yourself became a reality. And just suppose then you are facing God at the end of your life. Having done things actually over the years that in your innocent youth you thought you were not capable of doing. What will God say to you? See, if you're a Christian here this morning, he'll say, didn't you read my word? Oh, I knew about all that about you and so much more. Didn't you listen to what I said to you? from that moment when you first asked to be forgiven, from that moment when you first gave yourself to me? Didn't you hear the verdict that I, I pronounced on you? I'm not going to revise it. Now, I said, there is no condemnation. Now. Tomorrow I might have all of my sins laid out for everyone to see. Just imagine that they were all put out on the street. And I tell you, that would be embarrassing and painful for me. Especially when self-righteous people pass by when they picked them over, when they looked down in, the, in disgust at me, when they tut-tutted, I would find that deeply painful. He's a pastor and he did that. He thought that. He struggled with that sin. And I, and I want to tell you as well that our ongoing sins do cause some ongoing damage in our lives. I think that's what I'm going to be writing about in the prayer notes. But I want to tell you too, that if that does happen, if tomorrow all my sins are laid bare, I will say, yes, that's me. 
Yes, I am much more broken than I would like to be. I am, I am more rebellious. I am a sinner. But I am forgiven. That Those sins are not the last word on my life. The last word on my life has already been pronounced by God. You are now not condemned. And don't, don't dare sit there thinking to yourself, oh yeah, but my sins are worse than his. He's, he's a pastor after all, he must be really good. I could never have the confidence that he has because my sins are so bad. You do not know what sins I struggle with. Frankly, it doesn't matter whether on some scale that you invent I am better or worse than you. We're all bad enough to deserve condemnation and every single one of us is offered that same verdict. No condemnation. Do you see how free that makes us? You see, I think a, a very large proportion of our time and a very large proportion of us, we live barely any different from the rest of the world around because we haven't actually seen the glorious liberty of that. We live with that vague sense of shame that we feel we need to, uh, to, to cover up. We live worried about what we might discover about ourselves, what other people might discover about, uh, about us. We surround ourselves with all sorts of things where we try to persuade ourselves and others that we're better than, better than we are and God says that's all a waste of time, that's all a complete sham, I saw it all before anyway and I am telling you now you are not condemned. We live with this morbid fear about what uh, may go wrong in our, our lives in the future, what, what, what troubles may come, come to us and what, what uh, that may do in our lives. Let me say to you, actually, God will bring no trouble into your life, which he has not foreseen. He has not foreseen uh, your reaction to it. He has not dealt with more of that in later in Romans 8. The fundamental foundational truth that we must understand for the whole of our lives and that all of the rest of Romans 8 is built upon is that God does not condemn us now. He is only there to help us. He is only there to shepherd us to eternity. An eternity of bliss and freedom and freedom from all judgment. The great drama of your life is whether you will believe that and trust it. Or whether in fact you will live like the rest of the world.
whose main obsession is to build some protective barrier around a core that they dare not own up to. Jesus promises us everything. In a moment we're going to take bread and wine. They are there to assure true believers that all our sins are wiped away. We must come penitently. We must come with bowed heads that seek forgiveness. We must come with an attitude that says, I hate sin and I want to be rid of it. But we cannot come with anything but a list of sins that is embarrassingly long. As we come with that, though, God says, I dealt with all of that when my son died on the cross. Who are you to worry about it when I stopped doing so 2,000 years ago?